You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, let me be another uh, person to welcome you to Liberty Church this morning. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I have the honor and privilege of opening up the Word of God for us today. So uh, you can make your way, if you have a Bible, to the book of Acts, chapter 25. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 934 uh, is where you're going to find today's text. Uh, and this morning in Acts 25, we're going to be looking at the fourth of the Apostle Paul's final five trials Uh, recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, As we saw last week, uh, his third trial in Acts 24 was before the Roman governor named Felix. And that trial, if you weren't with us, we'll catch you up a little bit, that trial actually ended up going nowhere. Uh, The only thing it led to were were ongoing conversations between the Apostle Paul and Felix. Those conversations, though, went on for two years. Two years, that's a long time. It's a long time And think about it this way, it's an especially long time if you've spent your previous 20 years with this incredible sense of urgency and a flurry of activity trying to get the good news of Jesus out to as many people as possible around the Mediterranean world. It's kind of like how the whole world seemed to just stop back in March of 2020, if you can remember that far back. So so how long ago does that seem to us? That seems like a long time ago. You know, how, how done are we, or have we been maybe for many months, with, with pandemic life? That's only been, if you can think about it, that's only been 18 months. Paul was in prison for 24. So you might have a, a greater appreciation this morning for how Paul might have just felt incredibly trapped, or impatient, or antsy, or you know, having a sense of futility, wasted time. But finally, as we'll see today, Felix is succeeded by another governor, a man named Festus. And once again, the the wheels of the Roman judicial system begin to grind. Here's the question for us to consider this morning. In the course of these trials, does Paul have any expectation of real justice? Does he have any hope that he will actually experience real justice? See, by this point, he's already been denied that from the Jews in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that again today. We're going to see some ripple effects of that in Acts 25. Rome hasn't quite denied him justice outright, but they have not given him justice either. So having been let down by both, how is Paul going to proceed? Where does he look for justice? I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of Acts, chapter 25, and I'll begin there in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, 
nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice, which is his sister, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, This man, there is a man, left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, you have declared that in Jesus Christ, your kingdom is among us. And so we ask now, even in these moments, that you would open our eyes to see it, and open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to hold it, and open our hands to serve it. And all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Where does Paul look for justice? And where can you and I look for justice? Three things for us to consider this morning in light of Acts chapter 25. Jerusalem's facade, Rome's failure, and then God's vengeance and vindication. Jerusalem's facade, Rome's failure, God's vengeance and vindication. So first, let's talk about Jerusalem's facade. As we read, uh, the Jewish leaders are still very eager to see Paul's life come to an end. These, these two years that Paul has spent in prison now, they've done really nothing to temper their zeal. And I mean, if, they, if these Jewish leaders, if these 40 men among them especially, had kept their original vow, 
they would be really hungry by now. They vowed not to eat anything until Paul was dead. So maybe this is just hanger and they're finally (laughs) caught up to him and they're just really wanting to do something about that. So they plot again to ambush and kill Paul. And perhaps they're hoping to catch this new governor before he's fully aware of the situation, before he's aware that there even was a plot against Paul's life just a couple years earlier. But whether intentionally or inadvertently, this new governor, Festus, protects Paul by insisting, no, let's let's do the trial in, in Caesarea where Paul already is. For Paul, there is no justice in Jerusalem. There's no justice for Paul in Jerusalem. And more specifically, there's no justice for him among the Jewish leaders. They are not interested in a real trial. They are not seeking to really understand if what Paul proclaims is true. They're only interested, as we've seen now a couple times over, they're interested in backroom deals and political favors to try to get rid of this guy that they deem a threat. Now, the unbelievable tragedy of that is that these are the Jewish people. These are the people of God. These are the descendants of Abraham. God has chosen these very people through whom to bless all the nations of the earth. These are the people who are meant to be the representatives of the very nature and very character of God in the world. Now, what is justice? What is justice? Justice is making things right. And because you and I live in a, in a cultural moment where a lot of people, where really everybody in some way uses the word justice to promote their own understanding of what is right, we always need to clarify that biblical justice is rooted in the very nature and character of God himself. The prophet Isaiah once wrote, Whom did God consult? And who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? See, justice, the, the real thing, is rooted in God. And so when we think about biblical justice, it's making things right based on the design, based on the definition of God. Biblical justice is about putting things back into right relationship with with God himself. So how ironic is it that not only here in Acts 25, but throughout these five trials, Paul has more hope of finding justice in Rome than he does in Jerusalem. See, over here, there's a pagan empire conquered the known world and they've subjected all of these other people and territories to their rule and reign. Over here are the chief priests, the descendants of Aaron, you know, the brother of Moses. Their whole role, the whole role of a chief priest is to represent the one true God to the world. And Paul is saying, you know what? I'll take my chances over here. How precarious a place is it when there is no justice to be found among the people of God? How precarious a place is the world when there is no justice even among the people of God? What an indictment that Paul has more hope in Rome than he does in Jerusalem. And thinking about how this would apply to you and I today, what an indictment of us, the church, if people have more hope of justice among the godless systems of the world than they do with us. See, through Jesus, we are the people of God. We are, as the Apostle Peter calls us, the kingdom of priests that are meant to represent God to the world. So so God help us when people find more justice elsewhere. Remember, though, what what I said a moment ago. People in this moment use the word justice for all kinds of things that don't align with God's design or God's nature and character. And because people use other definitions, 
the church will always be accused of various forms of injustice that in reality are not. But that said, what if, for example, a poor person who's being exploited finds more allies among their atheistic or agnostic or pantheistic neighbors than they do from the people of God? Or what if, as we have just seen way too many examples of in recent history, what if children are exploited and abused in a church setting and church leaders cover that up? Or church leaders refuse to cooperate with civil authorities who are right there standing ready to punish evil and to punish wickedness? That that is a trampling of God's nature and character. It is a rejection of the justice of God. It's a violation of God's own command. For example, Psalm 82, to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What an indictment that victims of abuse have found more justice outside the church than in it. You should, as a person in this world, always have the best chance at finding justice, real justice, among the people of God. Now, if you're someone who's here this morning and you've not experienced that, you're someone who has found more justice outside the church than in it. I don't know if this will be a consolation to you or not. I don't know what you have been through. But I want you to hear me say this morning, that is not the way it's meant to be. That is not the way it's meant to be. What you have experienced is not the genuine nature and character of God and his justice. What you have experienced is a facade. It's a facade. Just like some leaders among the people of God in any era, the Jewish leaders, at least many of them in the first century, they were a facade. They looked the part on the outside, but they were far from it on the inside. And Jesus, for his part, during his earthly ministry, called them out on this multiple times. Matthew 23 is one example. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus said. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You you tithe from your spice rack, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And a verse later, Jesus continues, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. This is why the apostle Paul had no hope of real justice in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders were were more about ceremony than they were about substance. And you see actually a really good snapshot of this in Acts chapter 25. The Jewish king Agrippa arrives with his sister Bernice. Agrippa is the the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, That's the Herod that tried to have Jesus killed when he was born as a little baby. This king Agrippa now presides over some small territories within this larger Roman province, and Agrippa has the authority over the temple. He has the authority to appoint the Jewish high priest. We're going to look more at Paul's trial before Agrippa next week. That's the next chapter. But look here in verse 23. It says, On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with what? With great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So here's the picture. They've got their robes and their crowns on. They've got their entourage They've probably got some walk-up music playing. And they sit on judgment seats from which they are meant to administer justice. But it's all a facade. It's all a facade. 
the king, this king who appoints the high priest, that high priest who conspires with the other Jewish priests and leaders, they are not about justice at all. They care about the ceremony, not the substance. They're all about looking like the people of God than actually being the people of God. Now, how about us? How about us? Church, do we care more about the ceremony or the substance? Do we care more about looking like the people of God or actually being the people of God, being God's representatives to the world? To be God's people in the world means, among other things, that we care about God's justice, that we embody that in our relationships and interactions, that we labor for that, that we don't simply get frustrated that other people are co-opting the word. Right, so if we're spending more time griping about our culture's counterfeit definitions of justice rather than working for the real thing, I would argue that we're more about the ceremony than we're actually about the substance. And what I hope you hear me say this morning, Christian, you have the real thing. You are a steward of the genuine article, the real justice of God. So may we never become a facade in that. May the people of this region, the people of this state, the people of this world always have the best shot at real justice among us. That's Jerusalem's facade. Then second, let's talk about Rome's failure. Rome's failure. As we see, Paul has more hope of finding justice in Rome than he does in Jerusalem. But not a whole lot more. Not much more. By the, by the time we've arrived in Acts 25, though there have been no charges deserving death or imprisonment, though there's been no evidence, nothing substantiated, Paul has been left in prison for two years. No, no verdict rendered. So this is injustice by omission. This is injustice by neglect. Festus, this new governor, seems more just than his predecessor, but notice that, that just like his predecessor, he plays politics. He curries favors. Back in chapter 24, Felix left Paul in prison for two years. Why? As a favor to the Jewish people. He was trying to gain their appreciation. And now here in chapter 25, verse 9, Festus suggests relocating the trial back to Jerusalem for the very same reason. That's partiality. That's political gaming. That's not justice. And so, as we heard, Paul appeals to Caesar. He appeals to the emperor, the head of the entire Roman Empire. And this is all happening, these events are all playing out as best as we can tell, in the year 59 AD. And that means that the Caesar that Paul is appealing to is Nero. It's Nero. Now, Nero, not many years from now, will put Paul to death. He'll also put Peter to death, along with a lot of other Christians. But in these initial years of Nero's reign, he's actually a relatively peaceful guy. His reign is more peaceful. It's not until a few years later, somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, that Nero becomes increasingly sadistic and irrational and starts persecuting Christians in mass. So here's the question. Does Paul expect to find justice from Nero? Is that, is that why he appeals? He's like, well, man, I'm not getting it here, but you know who's just? Nero. He'll give me justice. I would be shocked if that was anywhere on Paul's mind when he made this appeal to Caesar. Like, we've read about Paul's life, yeah? Does Paul seem like a naive guy? He has, he has way too much experiential wisdom by this point in his life to trust the system. 
So he's most likely thinking like, well, hey, if I'm going to be denied justice everywhere, at least let me get as far along as I possibly can. At least let me get in front of the highest kinds of officials I, I, I possibly can. See, we, we can miss in these texts about Paul's trials, we can miss the forest for the trees in the book of Acts. So remember the big picture here. The good news of Jesus is going out into the world. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. And so the big picture here is that God is using the Roman judicial system to bring Paul into the very epicenter of, of the Gentile world. And so if Paul can get in front of higher and higher officials, that will actually serve the advance of the gospel. Rome is going to fail Paul. It already has through Felix's neglect. And now it fails him again through Festus's abdication. Festus says there in verse 26, I don't really know what to write. Uh, I have no charges to indicate. Herod or Agrippa, can you, can you help me out? I have nothing to write. But that's not really true, is it? It's not really true. The charges have been very clearly laid out. Verse 7, the Jews from Jerusalem, they lay out many and serious charges against Paul. It's just that there's nothing to them. They can't prove them. There's nothing substantiated. Moreover, Festus acknowledges there in verses 18 and 19, well, hey, this is really a religious dispute. This trial is not what I thought it was going to be about. Paul has not broken any Roman laws. And then Festus says in verse 25, Paul has done nothing deserving death. You see, long ago, Paul should have been declared innocent and set free. Long ago. Just like Felix before him, Festus had everything he needed to make that decision and act on it. But he didn't. He abdicated. Rather than doing what was right, he opted instead to do the Jews a favor. But this shouldn't really surprise us at all, should it? We should have known, we should have known that Rome would never be able to provide Paul with real justice. Why? Because they serve the wrong Lord. They serve the wrong Lord. It's subtle in this text until you see it, and then it screams pretty loudly. Look again at verse 26. Festus says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord. Now, who is he talking about when he says that? Caesar. Festus' Lord is not the Almighty God, the one whose very nature and character defines justice. His Lord is Nero, a Caesar who the world will soon find out can switch from peaceful to a sadistic murderer on a whim. In the second half of the first century, this actually becomes the, the line in the sand. Who is Lord? Is Caesar Lord? Or is Jesus Lord? But here in Acts 25, before that kind of becomes the definitive line in the sand, we get this little glimpse of a big truth. Little glimpse of a big truth. And that's this. If you serve the wrong Lord, you will never be free to administer real justice. If you serve the wrong Lord, you will never be free to administer real justice. Now, you might get it right sometimes, but you're not accountable to the right Lord. The wrong person is at the center of your life, and you're not, therefore, even aimed at the right standard. Therefore, whether it's by omission or commission, whether it's by abdication or, or outright assault, the best you can hope for is varying degrees of injustice. And this is why the psalmist says, as we heard earlier in today's scripture reading, put not your trust in princes. Not only are they fleeting, 
you know, here today, gone tomorrow, but there's no salvation there. They can't give you what you really need. They cannot give you real justice. Friends, wherever you see justice at work in this world through civil authorities, thank God for it. Thank God for it. Participate with it where you see it. Paul was rescued from mob violence and from murder multiple times by who? By a civil authority, by the Roman Tribune. He played, on a couple occasions, his Roman citizen card. The Roman judicial system delivered him from the injustice of the Jewish leaders time and time again in these chapters. But that doesn't mean that Paul can therefore put his trust in Rome. It doesn't mean he can now look to Rome for real justice. And I would offer the same charge to you in this cultural moment, especially to those of you maybe here this morning who are already inclined, already committed to pursuing justice in the world. Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in princes. By all means, pursue God's justice. And where you can participate with civil authorities and institutions, do that. Do that. People who worship a different Lord can still at times be co-belligerents with us against injustice. That's a Francis Schaeffer term, co-belligerents. They can fight with us against real injustice where it exists. So where you see opportunities for that, do that. But you will never find the fullness of real justice there. You will never be able to offer others what the human heart truly longs for. And if you try, not only will you be disappointed, you'll be tempted to to lower the bar by exchanging God's definition of justice for a counterfeit one. Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. So don't put your trust in Rome. Don't put your trust in princes. Put your trust in Jesus. So we've talked about Jerusalem's facade. We've talked about Rome's failure. Third and finally, Let's talk about God's vengeance and vindication. Where can we look for justice? Paul has appealed to Jerusalem, to the Jewish leaders. He said to them, hey, I'm still a faithful worshiper of God. As a Christian, as one who follows Jesus, I'm still a faithful Jew. Just a continuation of what was, what's been going on for centuries. But there's no justice for Paul in Jerusalem. He now appeals to Rome, to Caesar, And there's no justice for him there either. Though he's done nothing wrong, nothing deserving death or imprisonment, they failed to declare him innocent and let him go free. The only place that Paul can look for real justice is the only place it's found anyway, in God himself. In God himself. Justice is part of God's nature and character. He is the only one who can ultimately make things right. He is the only one who can put things back into right relationship with himself. How does God do that? How does God bring real justice? He does it through both vengeance and vindication. And the real article, the genuine justice that we long for, requires both of those things. Vengeance for the guilty and for the wicked, and vindication for the innocent. We don't this morning have time to walk through various texts of Scripture that unpack this, but but really, this is what then directs our own pursuit as God's people, our own pursuit of justice. See, God's vengeance is how you and I avoid becoming perpetrators of injustice. When you serve the wrong Lord, your pursuit of quote-unquote justice very quickly becomes injustice in another direction. But if God is judge, if vengeance belongs to him, 
then we are not responsible to make the world right ourselves. We do not have to avenge ourselves or anyone else. We pursue justice, we labor for it, but we leave ultimate justice to God. And at the same time, when we are then on the receiving end, when we experience injustice, experience injustice ourselves, God's vindication is how you and I endure. Like the many psalms in which the psalmist cries out, vindicate me, O God, vindicate me. There's unfair and unsubstantiated accusations being made against me. You are my help, vindicate me. We don't need any human court to vindicate us if God vindicates us. Whatever injustice we experience, we know that in him, ultimate justice is coming, that it's not long until the day of the Lord. Even as we sang together this morning, then who shall fall on bended knee, all creatures of our God and King. Now in our own lives, how can you and I know whether to expect God's vengeance or God's vindication? When you stop and think about it, you and I are both guilty sinners who deserve God's vengeance and we're at other times in our lives and in other ways, innocent sufferers that need God's vindication. How do we know which one wins? How can I be confident in knowing what God's justice means for me? The same way Paul did. The same way Paul did. See, as innocent as Paul is in these trials in the book of Acts, he once, in the same book of Acts, opposed God with extreme prejudice. And so the thought of God's justice should be terrifying and devastating For Paul, if anyone deserved God's vengeance, it was him. But, verse 19, a certain Jesus who was dead is now alive. And as Paul writes in Romans 3, it's because of the death and because of the resurrection of Jesus that God can both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. That, friends, that is real justice. Justice to simultaneously deal completely and harshly with sin and deal mercifully and graciously with those who perpetrate it, with sinners. That's real justice. And when you look to Jesus, when I look to Jesus in faith, the vengeance of God's justice falls squarely upon him instead of you or me. And all that remains for you at that point is vindication. No condemnation. See, that there is one place that we can look for ultimate justice. One place. And his name is Jesus. So friends, look to him. Look to him, even today. Labor for God's justice in the world. In his common grace, find some overlap. Find some co-belligerence among the authorities of this world. God willing, find a lot more overlap among the people of God as the church seeks to represent God's justice to the world. But even when Jerusalem is a facade and when Rome ultimately fails, the justice of Jesus prevails. The justice of Jesus prevails. So look for his vengeance. Look for his vindication. It is not long until the day of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of of your word. We bless you for the way it exposes the folly of looking to anyone or any system for justice apart from you. Forgive us for how we as your people fail to represent you and prefer ceremony over substance. Forgive us for that. 
move us into this world as your true representatives, full of substance, full of, full of your justice and representing that to the world. Forgive us also for putting our hope in princes, for thinking that we can find more of your justice in the systems of this world than we can find in you. I pray you would move us to be people who care about justice, but who look to you for it. Lead us on in that. And even as we now prepare to come to your table this morning, show us again what you have accomplished, that you, because of Jesus, because of his death, his body offered, his blood shed, you are both, Father, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. We come this morning longing for that same grace again in our lives. So meet us by your spirit as we come. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.